I'm glad to be here with you guys today. Would you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9? That will be where we will be in our series, King Jesus series, as we continue the journey through the gospel of Matthew. I want to start by sharing with you uh, the word that uh, I have chosen for my, uh, for my year. I began engaging kind of this process of choosing a word for the year. Uh, four years ago, my friend Jimmy Page, who's part of our church family, wrote a book called One Word That Will Change Your Life. And he spoke on that, I don't know, two or three years ago. It says, was in the pre-COVID era, uh, back at uh, uh, Colorado Early Colleges when we met there. And so um, this is the fourth year that I've done this. Uh, the first year I chose the word discipline. Uh, the second year was simplicity. Uh, last year was the word prayer. And this year, the word I chose is faith. Faith is the word uh, for me. The, the idea behind choosing one word for a year is just that as you think about uh, and lean into the year, that that word will give you intentionality in your life. Uh, and it actually has been quite, quite profound, actually. Uh, I would give a testimony to that. So just a suggestion uh, if you want to engage that. Uh, I chose the word uh, faith because I want to overcome uh, how worrisome I am. Uh, I, I struggle with worry. Um, and I began to think about this a lot more when we were going through Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. And that Jesus exhorts us not to worry. And I realized how much I do worry. I mean, I, I worry, like most parents, I worry about my kids. Um, like maybe many of you, I worry about our personal finances. Uh, I worry about uh, our church. I worry about people in our church. Uh, I coach a freshman basketball team. I worry about my basketball team, which nobody really cares about freshman basketball other than me <laughs> and the parents. But we just like lost our first game. We're five and one, pretty, pretty decent little squad. Uh, but is my team going to, like, respond to a loss with, like, competitive fire? That's what I want them to do. Or are they going to, like, feel sorry for themselves? And I'm, like, up at night, like, thinking about this. And I'm waking up the next morning. The first thing I think about isn't Jesus. It's my freshman basketball team. I'm like, I got issues. <laughs> I got issues. Um, but I worry about a lot of things. And when I get anxious, uh, I can tend to spin out. And then the anxiety and the worry lends itself to more. And in my life, the only way I know how to self-arrest from that slippery slope of worry and anxiety is to proclaim promises of God that are rooted in his scripture to me. And I just, I just want this to be a year that I can overcome my worry. One of the things that I said um, in, when we were going through Matthew 6 is that if Jesus is, like he, he straight up says this in Matthew 6, do not worry about your life. I mean, that's, that's the exhortation. Don't worry about your life. Don't worry about where, what you're going to wear. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. And I just go, okay, I hear that. Also, that's challenging for me. Um, and I said in that sermon that I don't believe that Jesus would exhort us three times in Matthew 6 not to worry if he wasn't able to empower us to actually do what he's calling us to do. 
And I'm just saying to you, like, I struggle with it, and I want 2022 to be a year that I can overcome how worrisome I am. If you ever think of me and you feel started to pray for your pastor, please pray with me in this. My word is faith. Faith, um, faith isn't always easy. I get that because life is hard. Um, and I want my faith to be not this, like, legal performance-oriented faith. I think sometimes when we think about Christian culture, even Christianese that we uh, think about are here in the church, sometimes our faith uh, lends itself to uh, putting uh, uh, quantity descriptors on faith. Uh, and we use words like, you just need to have stronger faith, right? And we put these quantity descriptors or these qualifiers on our faith. And then if we're not careful, We'll get on that performance treadmill of Christianity thinking, and we'll think that the stronger our faith is, or the more faith we have, then God will move in a way that's different than if we just had regular old faith, right? And it's just, I just think it's pretty prominent. Um, and it, it, we don't even know we're saying it sometimes, but it will come out like this. There's a, a need that I have in my life, a need that you have in, in your life, and we're asking God to move in a, in a tangible way. We need God to move. And what we might say in that is I'm praying really hard, as if God moves because you're praying harder than the other person who's barely hanging on with faith. And so I just wanna encourage faith today. I wanna validate that faith isn't always easy, but we gotta get off this uh, performance mindset about trying really hard to have stronger faith. And I like to get us to just embrace the simplicity and the power of having faith. Jesus would even say it this way, childlike faith, right? I want to share three pretty well-known verses about faith. Um, some of you in the room have probably memorized these verses. And what you're going to find in Matthew 9 today, and what you're going to hear in these next three verses, is there's no descriptors in the language about the quantity or the strength. It's just the simplicity of the power of having belief in God and having faith in God. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of, about what we don't see. Faith, faith is that. 1 Corinthians 16, 13, be on your guard, stand firm in the faith, be courageous, be strong. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we live by faith and not by sight. It doesn't say for we live by strong faith. It doesn't say we live by a quantity of faith. It just says we live by faith and we don't live by sight. Faith is the certainty about the goodness of God, even in hard times. Faith is a certainty in his promises, even if we are struggling. Faith is a certainty, we just sang this song, faith is a certainty that God works, he works all things, right? We just sang the song, it's Romans 8, 28. He works all things together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Faith 
has a positive expectation about our future. It believes in the goodness of God in the land of the living. Fear, fear has a negative expectation about the future. Faith has a positive expectation. And when we are walking in faith, fear has no place. It can't get rooted because we are believing in God. Um, You guys know Psalm 23, the first two lines of Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. Do you believe that? Do you believe that this morning? To say the Lord is my shepherd is a proclamation that you have faith, that you are in relationship with the living God and that he is good. To say I shall not be in want is a proclamation of faith that God ultimately somehow, some way is always going to provide for me. Like further down in the Psalm, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me, Victoria, with me, right? To say that is faith, you are with me, faith in the relationship with God. And also when I'm walking in the valley of the shadow and life is really hard and our tears is my food day and night, I am operating in faith that even in that place, I don't have to be afraid that God is good and he is with me. I wanna encourage us in faith today. It's my word of the year, but I wanna encourage your faith today. Matthew 9 reveals uh, the compassion of Jesus over and over and over and the power and the authority of Jesus responding to the faith of really ordinary, broken, needy people. That's what we see over and over and over again in Matthew 9, his compassion and his power responding to people operating in faith and real challenge and real struggle and real brokenness. Faith in the authority of Jesus is our focus today. I'm going to start with uh, three narrative stories. There's a lot of stuff in Matthew chapter 9. And what, what's uh, part of what's in there is three narrative stories about Jesus responding to faith. And what you're going to see in all of these narrative stories is that there are no descriptors of strength of faith or quantity of faith. What you're going to read, what we're going to hear is Jesus just responding in his presence and his power and his authority to faith, his faith. And before we get there, I want to ask you a few questions. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe that God is able to move in any way he chooses to move in any circumstance whenever he wants? Do you believe in the sovereignty of God? Do you believe in the miraculous power of God? Do you believe that God still has real breakthrough, that there is new ground and new wine still today, that there is more work for God to do to show people, us and people, that he is real and that God is on the move and he still brings real healing to real 
life situations today, that that's not over, that's not over. We read about in the Bible, but God doesn't really do that anymore. Like, do you believe that God still heals today? Do you make room for the unexpected and supernatural possibilities of God's power in your life and in the lives of those around you? Um, Because we're going to see it in the passage today. And um, I just want to say, like, I didn't grow up in a a culture, a small farm town, Methodist church, very traditional. My parents were here last week. My dad loved the stained glass and the pews and all the the hymns and everything. My dad was like, this is awesome. Um, So very traditional. But not a whole lot of room, not a whole lot of thought, not a whole lot of prayer about, you know, supernatural breakthrough in our lives. That's how I grew up. And so I didn't have experience. I didn't grow up. What I'm saying is I didn't grow up with experiencing those things. And I just want to say we, we need to be careful that we don't allow our lack of experience necessarily to shape our theology about the mighty works of God. Also, I would say this. We, we should not allow abuses that we have seen on TV around the supernatural or things that we may have read about online or in a magazine. I don't think people read magazines anymore or newspapers, but probably online. But things that we've seen, things that we've heard to shape our theology around the miraculous works of God. There's some wacky stuff out there. There's some spiritual abuse out there. There's some uh, manipulation out there around God moving in power and in the, and, and the miraculous. But we need to be careful that we don't allow those stories to shape what our theology is about these things. Our assumptions can't be so set in place that we leave no room for God to do the miraculous in our lives. Um, It is essential that we turn to the Bible, to the scripture to shape our theology about how God moves in power in response to people's faith. And I would say that if you are a Christian in this room, if you proclaim Jesus as the Lord and the Savior, your entire faith reality is centered on the miraculous. If you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, your faith is based on the miraculous. In the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the beginning of Jesus's life, miraculous virgin birth. The end of Jesus's life, at the end of every gospel, the miraculous story of Jesus raising from the dead and ascending to heaven. Everything about our Christian faith is centered in the miraculous. Are we making room for it in our lives today? What we're gonna see in these narratives, in these three narratives, again, is the authority and the power of Jesus responding to faith in the lives of ordinary people who are needy and broken and seeking hope and healing and help in their lives. Let's look at the first narrative, Matthew 9, 1 to 8. Familiar stories. Jesus stepped into a boat and he crossed over. He was uh, on one side of Galilee and he crossed over to the other side of Galilee, the Sea of Galilee, and he came to his own town, the town of Capernaum. And some men brought to him a paralytic and paralytic was lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins, your sins are forgiven. First miracle. Jesus is the savior of the world. He proclaims to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven. First miracle. 
At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up. Take your mat and go home. And the man got up and went home. Second miracle. And when the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe. And they praised God who had given such authority to men. When Jesus in this story says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. In that moment, he is making a prophetic proclamation to anyone there watching and listening. He is saying in that moment, I am the son of God. I am God himself. And I am saying and declaring as God in the flesh, your sins are forgiven. Now, if Jesus wasn't the unique son of God, and he says, your sons are forgiven, he is blaspheming. And in the old covenant of law, to blaspheme God is punishable by death. And so when he says, your sins are forgiven to this paralytic, he knows immediately what the Pharisees are thinking because those Pharisees are teachers of the Mosaic law. So that's why he says what he says to them. He goes, look, I'm telling you right now, I'm prophetically proclaiming to you with my words that I'm God. I'm saying your sins are forgiving. And now I'm gonna give you a demonstration. I'm gonna declare it that I'm over sin, that I am the Lord, I, I Lord over sin. And I'm also going to show you right here that I lord over disease and death as well. And so he says to the paralytic, get up, pick up your mat and go. And he does. And so the thing that I want to show you in this and I want to highlight for you in this story is in verse 2. And if you have your Bible open and you have a pen, I would invite you to put a box around this. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. And when Jesus saw their faith. So underline that, put a box around their faith. In the Greek, that word is translated into English, there. There is not singular, there is plural. Jesus saw their faith. And I think that's an interesting thing for us to consider. There's a lot more detail in this particular story in Mark chapter two. We get a lot more of the story. And if you know the story, there were four men and their friend was a paralytic. And they, they come into this town in Capernaum and Jesus is teaching in a home and it's packed to the gills. It was like the 445 Christmas Eve service. I mean, packed to the gills, right? And they couldn't get their friend in to Jesus. And so what they did was they went up around and they dug through the roof. I mean, that would be a wild scene, right? Like, I mean, the ceiling fan comes crashing down on Randy and the blanks. I mean, this is going to be madness. We're all like, what? I mean, stuff's falling out, and then they are lowering their friend in. I mean, it doesn't say gritty faith in the text, but that's some pretty gritty faith to get their friend to Jesus. And what I think is so interesting about this is the faith of the friends who brought their friend to Jesus Jesus responds to their faith and he forgives the paralytic and he heals him. 
what I want to say to you is this. Do not underestimate how important your faith is in helping someone else get to Jesus. Don't underestimate how you care for people, how you serve people. Don't underestimate the power of a written note or an email or a text message. I'm praying for you. Don't underestimate how powerful it is for you to go into a prayer closet and pray for someone that you know to get to Jesus. Because what happens in this story is Jesus was responding to the faith of the friends. And he responded in his power and he made his power evident in this story. Faith, Jesus responding to faith. Second narrative, uh, this is like a two for one. Two for one uh, in uh, Jesus responding with authority to people's faith, uh, verses 18 to 26. While Jesus was saying this, a ruler came and knelt before him and said, my daughter has died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. There's faith. There's belief. And Jesus got up and went with him and so did the disciples. And just then a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. And she said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. And Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed from that moment. And when Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd, he said, go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. And after the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand and she got up. She raised from the dead. And now news of this spread throughout the entire region. To be sure, what we're seeing here is some gritty faith to get to Jesus. The ruler, gritty faith, I got to get my daughter to Jesus. Uh, the, the woman who was stricken for 12 years in disease, getting to Jesus, fighting through a crowd. The crowds were everywhere around him, fighting through a crowd just to get to Jesus, um, doing what they could to get there. What I want to point out is verse 22. Jesus turned to the woman, take heart, daughter. He said, your faith, put a box around that, your faith has healed you. It's not faith in faith. Like, what didn't, it, it didn't bring her healing that she had faith in her faith. It didn't bring healing to her life that she had strong faith. It just says that Jesus opened the way of his power responding to her faith. Next story. Verses 27 to 34. And Jesus went on from there and two blind men followed him and calling out, have mercy on us, son of David. And when he had got indoors, the blind men came to him and he said, do you believe that I'm able to do this? In other words, I hear you screaming on the sidewalk, have mercy on us. But I want to ask you a question first. Do you have faith? Are you just saying this or do you actually believe that I am able to do this? 
Are you operating in real faith? Yes, Lord, they replied. And then he touched their eyes and said, according to your faith, it will be done to you. And their sight was recovered. And then Jesus warned them sternly, see that no one knows about this. But then they went on out and they spread the news about him all over that region. And while they were going out, a man, another two for one story, a man with demon possession and could not talk was brought to Jesus. More friends bringing their friend to Jesus. And when the demon was driven out, the man who had been mute spoke and the crowd was amazed and said, nothing like this has ever been seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, it is by the prince of demons that he drives out demons. Uh, What we see in Matthew 9 and the full narrative of the gospel of Matthew, we think about the kind of the meta-narrative of the story from Matthew 1 to the end of the book is in Matthew 9, what we're beginning to see in this story that we just read is a growing opposition to Jesus, a growing opposition to the way of Jesus, to the way of his grace, to his compassion, because the, the, the Pharisees had the power And they were so stuck in their pride and their power, and they didn't want to give that up. But the humble, the needy, the broken, who was experiencing the compassion of Jesus and the power of Jesus responding to their faith, that was spreading like wildfire. Grace brings freedom to the oppressed and the broken in humility, and it brings rage to the prideful and the powerful. Verse 29, here's the box. Here's the same, same statement. We see this according to, again, underline this box, this, your faith, it will be done for you. So narrative one, we see according to their faith. Narrative two, we see your faith. And then narrative three, we see that phrase, your faith. Jesus responding to faith in him every single time. His power and his authority moving in the hearts and lives of broken people, Jesus transforming them. I want to speak um, as we get to one more passage that I want to read to to, uh, anyone in the room that maybe uh, has been having or is currently in uh, what we might call a crisis of faith, right? A season of struggle where um, maybe doubt feels more prominent than faith in God. And I just want to speak to anyone in the room who may be in that. Also, others in the room that maybe, maybe you're, you're investigating faith in God for the first time. Um, that you've been around faith or you've been around church, but there's something that's happening and you are here and you are maybe investigating faith in God for the first time. Or thirdly, a third group, maybe, maybe you have been in a crisis of faith and you have walked away from faith and you are uh, the, the, the movement of God. God, is, his spirit is wooing you back. And you are in a season where like, I wanna re-engage my faith. I wanna speak to uh, anyone in the room that might be in one of those three different areas. And I wanna use the calling of Matthew to speak to you about this. Um, before we read the calling of Matthew in Matthew 9, uh, I would just say like, like real faith, like real grounded, rooted faith in God 
um, isn't found in you trying really hard to have more faith or stronger faith. That's not how faith grows. Uh, White knuckling yourself to it. Um, Real faith, authentic faith isn't found in other people's faith. Although I would say in my, my journey, when I see other people operating in real faith, it certainly encourages me, encourages me. Uh, and I think we can encourage each other in these ways, but, uh, but my faith has to be my own faith. You know, that's part of what we, what we deal with as parents is we, we want our kids to know Jesus and follow Jesus and, and, and have their own real faith. And we understand as parents, at some point along the journey, our kids have to have it for themselves. They can't have my faith. They have to have their own faith. I would even say this as a pastor of this church, authentic faith isn't found in the church. And I love the church, I'm giving my life, Lindsay and I are giving our lives to the mission and to the beauty of the church, but the the church is beautiful and it's the bride of Christ, but it's messy and it's broken and it ain't perfect. And if we put our faith in the church, guess what? You're gonna be disappointed. And if if you put your faith in Jesus and the faith of other people, guess what? You're gonna be disappointed. And if you put your faith in your ability to muster up more faith or have strong faith, guess what? You're gonna be disappointed. Authentic, liberating, real, tangible breakthrough, new wine, new ground, real, liberating, authentic faith is only found in Jesus. That is the only place. And all it takes, church, for real radical transformation is one encounter with a gracious call of God on your life. It transforms everything. And that's what we see in the calling of Matthew in chapter nine. Remember Matthew, this is the author of the gospel of Matthew, Matthew. So we're gonna read a bit of his, he's gonna give you the beginning of his testimony. And he was a scoundrel. And if you lived, if you were Jewish, and if you lived in the ancient city of Capernaum, you hated him. You disdained him for who he was and what he was doing. He was a tax collector. He sold out his own people for the oppressive Roman government. He stole money from his own people to pad his own bank account. In Jesus' day, tax collectors were barred from the synagogue and they were considered an outcast from Jewish life. That's Matthew. That's who wrote the gospel of Matthew. And he gives us a window in to the beginning of his transformation story. One encounter with the gracious call of God in our life will change everything. Here's the story. He gives us a window into his own story. As Jesus came on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Um, Do you think in Matthew's life before this moment happened that people in his town, people that he betrayed, because he still lived in the town of Capernaum. He had to get out of his house. He had to like leave his house. He had to walk through the city to get to his tax booth. He was passing people in the marketplace every single day. Do you think that people in his town that knew him, that watched him grow up, that remembered playing kick the can with him when he was like eight years old down the sidewalk or whatever, do you think that they ever put any social pressure on him for him to stop doing what you're doing? Do you think he ever faced that? Social pressure? I think he faced it every day. Do you think that people in his town that hated him for what he was doing, do you think that they ever used the tactics of guilting him and shaming him so that he would change? Do you think they used that tactic? Do you think those tactics, do you think the social pressure and the guilting and the shaming, do you think those tactics worked to actually transform Matthew's life? No, we don't have to think, we know. Why do we know? Because in the story, where was Matthew? He was where? He was in a tax booth. Social pressure, guilt, shame. We think it somehow, some way might help somebody be transformed to love Jesus. But I'm telling you, it makes them go the other way. Jesus and his gracious call is the only thing that can transform someone's life from the inside out. And that's what we see in the story. The gracious call of Jesus. Jesus wasn't looking at his behavior. If Jesus was looking at the behavior of Matthew, he would have never come to the tax booth that day and called him. Man looks on the outside, but God looks at the heart. And he sees Matthew for who he is. And his gracious call just says, follow me. And what does it say? Matthew got up and he followed him. The grace on display in this story is remarkable and almost unbelievable. And when we read the gospel, sometimes we, we, we miss it. We're like, oh yeah, he, Jesus goes and he calls him and he went. And then that was it. But the story behind the story is what is so profound. The transformation in his life is so profound. Certainly, grace calls people right where they are. Grace doesn't look at behavior. It looks at the heart. And Jesus calls Matthew right where he is. And grace loves people so much that it will not leave you there. The grace call on Matthew was radical, totally unbelievable. But it called Matthew out of the tax booth out of his sin, out of the lies of the world, out of operating in his own selfishness and betrayal. It called him away from those things. Matthew's life radically changed. He left the tax booth. He became one of the 12 apostles. That's some pretty radical life change, don't you think? Like a tax collector to one of the 12 disciples to the degree that Jewish history tells us that Matthew died a martyr's death because he would not stop proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord. His life totally changed. Following Jesus is about freedom. 
It's about freedom from our sin and our selfishness and the lies of the world and freedom to the way of God in our lives. It is freedom from, it is freedom from the world. It is freedom from what doesn't look like heaven or what isn't heaven to freedom to what is heaven. It changes things. C.S. Lewis calls this the great exchange. He would call what we just read in Matthew 9, the story of Matthew, uh, author, uh, theologian C.S. Lewis, the great exchange. And what we lose when we walk away from sin and we walk away from our selfishness and we walk away from our pride and we walk away from the lies of the world and we follow Jesus. We follow Jesus. We give up things in freedom. And what we lose or what we give up in this world is beyond compare from what we gain. Radical, total forgiveness of sin and eternal security of the peace of God that passes understanding. And the God of peace is always with us and eternal security and the hope that we have in God. What we give up, sometimes I think we feel like we're giving up so much but in comparison to what we gain, it's, it's not even comparable. And it's one, one encounter with the living God that changes everything. What do we see in Matthew's life? What did he do? What did he do first when he made the great exchange? He threw a dinner party. I think we need to throw more dinner parties. I think we need to hang out more. I think you need to invite us to your house to have some good food and some good drink and have a dinner party. That's what I think. And what, I mean, he invites all of his, who does, he, who does Matthew invite to the party? All of his tax collector homies and all of the scoundrels. Why does he invite them? Why do you think he invites them? Because he wants them. What's that? I missed it. They know how to party. They, yeah. <laughs> Nate dog. <laughs> I love it because he is tasting something from heaven that he's never tasted before. He's like, if this is for me, then it's for everyone. And they too must know. And what do the religious people do? (laughs) Scoff at it. They scoff at it. Don't allow your Christianity to get so caught up in the doing and the traditions that you miss the joy of communing with God and communing with each other at dinner parties. C.S. Lewis also says this phrase, joy is the serious business of heaven. Let's do more of that. I think that's more effective in reaching people than social pressure, guilting, and shaming people. Maybe instead of guilting and pressuring and shaming people, maybe go spend 50 bucks on a good bottle of wine and grill some steak and invite somebody to your house. See if that doesn't do something a little different. And I'm preaching to myself, I'm preaching to myself. Faith in the authority 
of Jesus is the answer to all our questions. Jesus has authority over sin. Jesus has authority over demonic darkness. Jesus has authority over disease. Jesus has authority over death. Jesus has authority to call anyone in any situation, anywhere with a gracious call to come and follow him. All it takes for radical transformation is for somebody to have one encounter with the grace of Jesus and it changes it changed everything for me. Babe, we need to have some dinner parties. Okay, Chris Simmons. Nate Dog, will you come party with us? Okay. Don't follow me. Jesus is the only one worth following. And I would say, as Paul said, if you're following me, it's because I'm following Jesus. And here's what Jesus gives us at the end of Matthew 9. And we'll close here. Worship team, you guys can come on up. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages and teaching in their synagogues. He was preaching the good news of the kingdom. And he was healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He wasn't putting social pressure on them. He wasn't guilting and shaming them. He had compassion on them. And then he said these words. And then he said to his disciples, and if you are a disciple of Jesus, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, this message is to you and to me. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord or pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest field. And I would say this, to send you out, me out, us out as workers who operate in compassion and who help invite people to know the grace of Jesus. If we go proclaim the truth of Jesus, and people don't experience an atmosphere of grace, our truth comes across as arrogance and pride and religion, and people walk away from it. But if we earn the right to be heard by the way we are gracious and compassionate with people, I just believe this overtime relational people will lean in and they will say, I don't understand how you have hope and joy. I don't understand how you have peace. What is it? All I know to tell you is that Jesus changed everything. I was one way, and now I'm another way. And the only thing in the middle was Jesus the Christ. Lord, thank you for these stories, these stories of your power and your presence responding to people's faith, the power of the call of Matthew and the transformation that happened in his life. Lord, do that in us. Ordinary people but Lord, we want to have belief in an extraordinary God that responds in your presence and power. So I just I just 
I just proclaim the authority of Jesus in this room over every situation, over every need, over every fear, over every unanswered question. I just remind your people, Lord, that you are compassionate and merciful. I pray, Lord, that we would get off any performance-driven faith track and we just would just say, Lord, I believe. Help me with my unbelief. Knowing that you respond to the faith of your people and your presence and your power. So manifest your power, manifest your presence to us as we sing in response to the authority of your word in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.